Hey friends, Nina here. About a week ago, I sat down and recorded a conversation with two of my podcast friends, Lainey from True Crime Fan Club and Charlie from Crime Lines. We wanted to talk about the documentary on Netflix, The Girl in the Picture. I hope you enjoy this casual discussion, and if you have any thoughts or feelings about the documentary or our commentary that you want to share, feel free to reach out to us on social media. And now, on with the show. Before we get into too much discussion on the documentary, I do want people to know that you will have had to have watched it or be familiar with the case to understand anything we're talking about. We are not doing a rundown where you're getting a Cliff Notes version. This is a discussion for those who have watched it. It is called The Girl in the Picture. And I just want to know, yes, no, thumbs up, down, sideways. What what did you think about this documentary taken on the whole? I would say that if you weren't familiar with the case, it definitely kind of enlightens you to everything and hits the high points of it. But there's so many details that are kind of excluded from it, I'm I'm sure, for time and consistency. But if you are kind of just that natural sleuth of a person, I think it'll entice you to want to delve into the case more and understand the backstory more. I agree. Having listened to Charlie's episode and having read the book, I was like, wait, what about, what about, like, they missed so many things that this could have been a three or four part series. I absolutely agree with that. I did enjoy the documentary on the whole, but knowing the case really well, I actually wondered if other people were confused if they watched it without some of the connecting points. For those who have not listened to my episode, it was in April 2020. It is named Franklin Delano Floyd, Susan Sidvacus, and Michael Hughes. I kind of added names to the title after people told me they couldn't find it because whatever name they were searching, it wasn't popping up. So this case is about a woman who, at the time of her death, was going by the name Tanya. The documentary opens with her death. She was critically injured after an apparent hit-and-run accident in Oklahoma City. Her husband at the time, who was significantly older than her, he tried to claim life insurance he had recently taken out on her, but he didn't provide a valid social security number. This is one of those little details they didn't include. He actually tried to give them a couple fake social security numbers before they kept saying they're not they're not coming back to anyone. And so he eventually gave one that worked, but it didn't match his name. It actually matched a career criminal and fugitive named Franklin Floyd, which is his real identity. And the documentary then moves into the investigation into who Floyd and Tanya really were. It involves Floyd kidnapping Tanya's son, Michael, likely killing him, only for investigators to learn that Floyd had also kidnapped Tanya as a child. And this just is the unraveling of this case and how it was solved, which took like decades because we needed genetic genealogy to become a thing. Floyd is suspected in Tanya Suzanne's death. We should probably use her her name at birth. Also, her son Michael, and then 
Um, he has been convicted in Cheryl Camasso's murder. She was a friend of Suzanne's. This documentary, to me, was very much about Suzanne. So details about Cheryl, details about Floyd's upbringing. They talk about his criminal record, but not his upbringing, which made him who he was. But I think that goes to the point of this could have been three or four parts. Yes, his early life was horrific. I really believe that that probably could have been its own episode. His family didn't participate. I don't know if they tried to get his family to participate, um, if any of them are still alive because he did have siblings. But, you know, they truncated a lot and they made this about Suzanne, which I think is is a good thing. It made it about the victim. Did you find it confusing that they were leaving stuff out? I think because we, I had listened to your episode. I hadn't read the book or anything like that, but I after listening to it and seeing the bigger picture of everything, it it left me confused because I was like, wait a minute, didn't something happen in between this or wasn't there somebody else involved? You know, if you go in again with no knowledge of it, maybe you won't be as confused. But if you have some backstory, I think it might be more frustration that it, these things are left out because, yes, you know, focusing on one person is not terrible, but there are other you know, people involved, too, that deserve as much attention and their backstory, too. So I, I get why they may have focused just on one person, but it definitely left me confused. And I had to go back and, you know, do my own sleuthing again and re-listen to your episode so that I could kind of be caught up again and go, OK, yeah, I wasn't crazy for that part. <laughs> so I watched this right after watching the Cecil Hotel Elisa Lamb series. And there was like five episodes on her disappearance and death and one episode on all of the craziness involving Suzanne. I guess anyone who's listening to this, especially if they listen to Crime Lines, they like a deep dive. Yeah, They like mm -hmm. all the details, you know, yeah. just... I can't leave details out. Like, <laughs> like I'm poor, I just, I, I'm not very good at filtering out. You know what? This was relevant, but not as important as a straight line narrative. I'm not good at that. My listeners like the details. So I think we're coming from that point of view. I think people who might like the quick case coverage in a documentary style will like it. But I have to say that I don't think this case was really well served by such a truncated experience. If you used this as a source for your podcast, I'm not saying anything would be wrong, but there'd be little pieces missing. Like after Suzanne's death, after Floyd gave his real social security number, he went on the run and he was gone for six weeks. All that fighting for custody and parental rights of Michael, he did most of that from jail which is why he was showing up, because he had nowhere else to be, because he was in jail all the time. He refused the paternity test, so he very likely knew he was not Michael's father, which I think is, I thought that was an important detail. And then he fought the termination of rights the first time due to a procedural issue. He said he deserved an evidentiary hearing, and they ruled yes. And so after they cut off visits, which were in jail, when this poor foster family has this little boy, they are just pouring every energy they have into him and healing him. They're taking him to these visits in prison. And I thought that was something that 
really impacted me when I researched this case that felt like a big missing piece in the story in the documentary. So it's kind of hard to believe there's more to this story than was in the documentary because it's just so much was going on, but there is more. I think the thing that's disturbed me the most since watching it, and it's very rare that because of how long I've been kind of consuming true crime content that anything really um, like emotionally gets to me on a level that I'm always thinking about it. Since I've watched it, re-listened to it, and seeing the foster parents um, and their like very palpable, visible pain, oh my gosh, it's still, it like haunts me emotionally. And probably now because I'm a mom and I never believed when people said that, that these cases or these stories where children are involved affect you differently or emotionally because you now understand kind of that care and love that goes into raising a child, even one that isn't your own like flesh and blood. You just have a natural inclination to care um, or I with hope so. But that piece in particular, I wish they would have spent more time because it truly was a failure for Michael, you know, to have to go through that. And this family, too, who who loved him, who was trying to do everything to kind of normalize his life. This was a kid who was drinking Pepsi out of a bottle and who would throw fits if he didn't get that. And that's just like a, on a trauma level, like a trauma response. If, if I don't get what I'm used to, it, it was, I don't know, it was just really sad. It still kind of gets to me if I try to think about that a little bit too deep, I'll probably start sobbing. It's just so difficult. Having been a foster mom and having that child in my home, and one of your worst nightmares is that the family is going to snatch the child away. And they lived the worst nightmare. Yeah. And truly the worst nightmare because the the child was killed. The story of Michael is one of the things that I have a huge question about. I brought it up two years ago in my episode. It was not answered in the documentary. And it was that Suzanne had had at least three children. Two were girls and one was a boy. Floyd decided that they were going to keep the boy and adopt out the girls, which I will say... Um, Megan, one of the daughter's adoptive mothers, spoke. She seems like a very wonderful person. It looks like Megan landed in a in a much better place than being raised by Floyd, for sure. Um, but one of the things that she mentioned was he just wanted money. And that is one of the things that happened. This was a private adoption, and they did get, for the time, a significant amount of money for adopting her. So maybe Floyd just saw these babies as cash cows <laughs> as something he could mm-hmm. sell but why keep the boy and not the girls when his predilection was for abusing girls i think the answer may lie in suzanne maybe she even talked him into adopting out the girls and keeping one i mean maybe she was protecting them or he thought they could make more Yeah. And it's interesting because he is not believed to be the father of any of the three, which is another thing that is interesting to me. It's believed that Suzanne's relationships were mostly secret. And when she got pregnant, at least with two of them, she started to make some plans to take off with the with the father. And of course, Floyd had her on a leash. The way he held Michael over her head 
Like she couldn't go, she couldn't take him to the zoo. She couldn't do anything with Michael without him because he probably knew that if she had the baby, she could run. If he had the baby, there's no way she would leave. It's it's a very terrifying portrayal of the type of control abusers and predators have over their victims. And I do think if we're going to say of the things they left out, I think they did a very good job not leaving that out. They had people who knew her, people from high school and from her brief adult life who were witnesses to this. And so that actually brings me to something that was asked. I put out on social media asking for some thoughts and views on this. Uh, Basically, so the question I put out on social media, let me back up and preface it with that, was if you could ask anyone in the documentary any question, what would it be? And Melissa's question was why no one in her life through, you know, age four or five up to 21 went to law enforcement, called social services. She said she, she recognizes that they probably didn't realize how serious the circumstances were, but enough people had pieces, you know, that you would hope someone would have gone to the police. We don't have a good picture of her elementary school setup. You know, did she spend several years in the same district with the same kids where people could see the pattern? Or were they moving around so frequently that, you know, they were there for a year, 18 months, two years. By the time somebody noticed, they would pick up and move again. But when she got to high school and was in the same school and making friends, that's when people, she was in the same place for three years, I believe. And suddenly people are like, oh, wait a minute, there's something not right here. And I do want to point out that the one person who knew more the extent of the abuse was also a teenager herself at the time and had witnessed something that likely traumatized her. And I definitely don't hold that against her. I also think we may need to remember the circles they were moving in. She was dancing at an adult club. I'm not going to say that every woman who dances at an adult club is being abused or is not protected, but it is common in the sex industry to see women being exploited and abused. Basically, their response is, we're going to try to get her away from him. Everyone else stay away from them. I also, I mean, I don't always want to keep going back to, oh, it was the time period. It was the time period because certainly people were reporting things to child services and to the police at that time. But I will say there was a little bit less of a getting involved mentality. Getting involved was not something people did. Nina and I are old enough to know that Lainey's just relying on our elder experience. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, just within my own research, of course, my mom is also a survivor of domestic violence. Everybody in my family knew this was happening. And this was mid-90s. There wasn't this idea of like, I'm going to step in and do something. My grandmother also was aware that this was happening. And so her concern was with my mom, but also with the three children that she had. And her motivation really was to get us away from that situation versus calling the cops on my biological father. I don't understand that personally from my perspective, because I have the luxury, like I say, of um, counseling. I have the luxury of 
knowing better. I think that that's probably a societal thing that, you know, you just don't interfere. And I think that that's been going on for such a long time that now people are realizing the true danger that lies behind being silent for so long um, and the lives that truly can be um, affected in the long term, either by the loss of life or by permanent injuries, et cetera. So there's also a distrust of the police in certain circles that may make them hesitant to reach out to the police for help. You often see people who engage in sex work being arrested themselves and punished for reporting anything like, oh, you reported abuse. Sure, we'll take care of that. But we're also going to arrest you for solicitation. They don't want to bring that on themselves. So another poster said that uh, it's Carrie. She was wondering if that male friend from high school ever reached out to her daughter because he seemed so appreciative of Suzanne's kindness. And I kind of got the impression that he was at the the headstone ceremony, but I may just be making that up in my head. But that was something that actually stood out to me in this was how Suzanne had grown up with this horrible abuse, yet she seems to be, I mean, she was obviously very submissive and compliant, but also very kind and funny and smart and a good student and welcoming to people. So I think that was something, again, this documentary did well in focusing on her, is I feel like we got a really big picture of who she was as a person. Okay, so Melissa wanted to know if all the pregnancies were from the kidnapper, and actually none of them were. Oh, Jackie brought up something that I actually looked up. Did anyone else look up the kidnapping the dancer had said? Well, I was kidnapped and held for five years, and my mom did everything to try to find me. No, I didn't look that up. Mm -mm. It's towards the end of the documentary. I actually had to, like, rewind to get her name to go look it up. But in the 70s, as a child, she had been taken, and she said it was, like, five or six years. Her mom went to Congress people. She did everything she could to get her back. And so Jackie's like, just kind of an aside, she mentions very casually that she was kidnapped as a child. And um, it would be nice to hear a little bit more context to that. I did look it up. I didn't get into the newspaper archives or anything. I just found a lot of articles online going, I wonder what happened. <laughs> but if she was gone for five or six years, and her mom was contacting Congress people, I'm going to take a wild guess that it was a custody kidnapping. Oh, and Jackie also asked the same question that I did about how did she function so well being the victim of unspeakable trauma? And then why did they raise the middle child? They She put placed one for adoption, raised one, and placed the third for adoption. Yeah, and they are unanswerable questions for sure. But I do know people want to know what happened with the first baby. And from my understanding, she was adopted I am pretty sure they know who she is, but they haven't. If she's not public, then right. um, they're just going to leave it like that. Yeah, she deserves her privacy if that's what she wants. And in that case, that one, for all we know, may have been a closed adoption versus the adoption with Megan where the adoptive parents met them and met them repeatedly. Oh, good point. Now we're going to get to the questions that the question that I see repeated over and over and over again. It's kind of like in plain sight. Yeah. What's going on with these parents? I feel like Suzanne's father explained his situation very well. It, you know, he was 
young. He had just come back from Vietnam. They basically told him, if you take your daughter, we're not going to split up her sisters because those two have a different father. So you basically have to take three girls as you're living in your parents' house, traumatized. And so he decided not to take them back from foster care, which then her mother, Sandy, met Franklin Floyd. I think it was going by Brandon something at the time. And he helped her get the girls back from social services. It's so interesting because we still have this situation today with social services. If you get married and you set up a stable home, that goes a long way to getting your kids back from social services. It does. So that piece of paper that she probably felt a little pushed into doing to get her girls back caused some issues. So for those who may not remember the details, Sandy ended up going to lock up for like 30 days for passing bad checks. Floyd was home watching her girls for her, and he left. And he took the younger two, literally dropped them off at a children's home, and went on the run with Suzanne. And that was the last they had they had seen her. And this is where this is something that got left out of the documentary. So it's almost hard for me to talk about this without bringing this up. There was actually a fourth child. So there was Suzanne, there were her two sisters, and then there was a baby. The baby was not mentioned at all in this. I mean, he I'm calling him a baby. He's like he's like my age now. <laughs> like he's a he's a grown ass man. <laughs> at the time. At the time he was a baby. But I don't know if they left it out because it's just too confusing mm-hmm. because he's been public. Like he was in Forensic Magazine right. two, three years ago. He's been public about this. Philip, right? Philip, yep. So when Sandy was approached and said, we think we found your daughter. I mean, she's deceased, but we know what happened to her. And she's like, oh, yeah, my ex-husband kidnapped her. At the time, she said he also kidnapped Philip. Like, he dropped the girls off and went on the run with Suzanne and Philip. But then they find Philip. His adoptive mom Googled his name because he wanted to know more about his past. She literally Googled his birth name, and all of a sudden, he's showing up on the Doe Network as a missing child. Wow. From what I understand, two years ago, the story was that she knew Sandy, and she adopted him at pretty much birth. And Sandy's saying, no, he was kidnapped by Floyd. So did Franklin Floyd kidnap him, but somehow get him to Sandy's friend to raise? Why would Sandy say he was kidnapped with Floyd if he wasn't? And then in this documentary, she doesn't mention him at all. She says he took the three girls, he dropped two of them off and ran with Suzanne. So Sandy's not mentioning Philip now. Could that have been a director's choice to not mention Philip since he was completely erased from the documentary? I don't know. It's such an odd thing to leave out because it was such a confusing part of the original story because we have different people telling different stories. I was kind of hoping it'd get cleared up and then it was just completely ignored. Well, and who was Philip's father? Is it the same father as the two girls, not Suzanne's father? I I don't know. His father is not Floyd. <laughs> okay. And I'm wondering... Right. Was he born in Michigan? Was he born in the Carolinas? Because she was arrested in North Carolina, but the girls were born in Michigan. Yeah. And then he had moved them all to Texas at one point. So, you know, I honestly cannot remember where 
they were when he was born. But when he was born, I'm pretty sure she was already with Floyd, but Floyd was not the father. But if she was married to Floyd, he may have been put on the birth certificate and able to surrender the baby. Right. He may have had the presumed paternity, which at that time was the only paternity there was because we didn't have DNA. Well, we had DNA, obviously. We'd have DNA testing. (laughs) But um, (laughs) I always say things like, oh, we didn't have DNA back then. I'm like, we've always had DNA. I kind of flagged that to you. So I'm glad you mentioned that because I was wondering if it was a way for her to save face and be like, oh, he kidnapped her. And maybe there's like the stigma attached with, yeah, I was going to give this baby away anyway. And maybe making it a thing to where it was like, well, actually, the baby was taken from me. But it boggles my mind that this mother wasn't like, where is my kid every single day and bringing this to awareness every single day? Because I guarantee you, if Brett Hobbs took Tilden Hobbs out of my home for a longer period of time, he would be buried under the expressway. (laughs) Okay, Um, and I would have my child. So I want to bring up Franklin's early childhood, Mm -hmm. because these people, I think Floyd and Suzanne's mother, may have viewed children as disposable, for lack of a better word. Floyd was one of many children, and he was dropped off at the Baptist Children's Home near Atlanta when he was two and was never adopted. And he stayed there until he was 16. I mean, he had an absolutely horrific upbringing, He was unwanted. He was unloved, not excusing anything that he's done, but just I don't I can see where he would have no respect for the sanctity of a child because nobody had it for him. Right. Nobody had it for him. And it's possible that this mother was the same way that just eh, somebody's got them. They're fine. Right. I re-listened to my episode. It was actually pretty good. My audio was a little iffy, but my episode was, I was like, oh, I actually, this is a pretty clear way. It's actually really good. Yeah. Highly recommend my own podcast. <laughs> I know. I, I do. I recommend everyone listen to Crime Lines. Now, I was in the Gen Y Discord and Erin asked two months ago, you know, what's like the most complicated case you know about? And I named this case. I said, oh, it's definitely this one. And I went back and listened to my episode. and I was like, wow, I actually presented that pretty clearly. But (laughs) it is a very complicated case. But when I listened to it, I said something about maybe the mom, Sandy, had said that Philip was missing because she was hoping to reconnect with him. Like all these years later, I mean, this was, these were Many years later, she finds out her daughter had died. We actually do not know what happened with the other two daughters, whether she raised them or if they ended up going back into care. But then she has this other baby. Maybe she thought, this is my chance to find out where he is, find out what happened to him. However, that was kind of dispelled with this documentary. So Sandy had Suzanne, had her kidnapped, found out she was dead, and then found out she has a she has a biological granddaughter out there who was who was wanting contact megan's mother reached out for contact and said there was absolutely no interest where when you contrast that to suzanne's father he said i don't have her but i have megan and that's that'll do and then i sobbed and i loved it. that was probably my favorite moment in the whole thing it was just a very sweet full circle 
They, oh, and then she named the baby Michael. If I get going on this, I will start crying. Oh, my gosh. Please stop. <laughs> well, and Suzanne's birth father and Megan seem to have a genuine affection for each other in the scenes we saw where yes. they were together. Yeah. In this in this docuseries, they seemed there seemed to be some genuine affection there. According to Megan's adoptive mother, Sandy is not interested in that relationship, which then made me think, well, maybe she didn't lump Philip in there because she wanted a connection to him since she has access to Megan and isn't interested. I'm wondering, we know a little bit about Franklin's background. We don't know Sandy's. I don't I don't know what her upbringing was like, but I definitely feel like there is there is something just missing there. Mm hmm. Well, and if I can share a personal story, we adopted our son from foster care. And the week that he turned 18, we got a letter from his biological grandmother saying, I know he's of age. I really would like to talk to him and see him and have a relationship if he is interested. I know he turned 18 on this date. Please, you know, basically, and, and we went to our son and said, look, this is your biological grandmother. Would you like to have a relationship with her? And he was like, well, I'd like to meet her and and we'll see. But I mean, she was right there the week he turned 18 asking. So it, it, just just a little compare and contrast between Suzanne's mother and, and my son's biological grandmother. I would have to reason based off of everything that was in your episode within the documentary and just kind of you can kind of just tell when you meet a person, right? It It's very possible that she just was stuck with these children. You know, maybe there was uh, not a real education behind birth control, or if, you know, there was kind of a conservative background, there isn't the need for it um, from some perspectives. But it, this could have just been, this is my circumstance. Like I have these kids don't really want them gotta keep them alive because the law says I do. Um, But maybe she was relieved. Maybe she was relieved that, you know, he did do this or he did take them and drop them off with somebody else. Or, you know, we don't, like you said, we don't know if she was involved in the other two daughters who remained in their upbringing or anything like that. I would caution to say that she likely was like, oh, well, go ahead. (laughs) You got it from here. I'm good. And so maybe that's why she didn't really have any interest in general, because she never really wanted family. When the girls, the three were initially placed in foster care, it was at her request. They were not right. They were not removed from the home. She said, "I, I can't take care of them, which, you know, she was young, single mother, they were living in a trailer that got knocked over from a tornado. Like, it was not great circumstances. I do want to mention that Jackie put on my Facebook that she was surprised that they included, after Suzanne's mother spoke, they included two people out straight up criticizing her. One was um, Heather, who was like, I blame, literally said, I blame her mom here. Like, I blame her to some degree. And then Megan's adoptive mother saying she has no interest in connecting with Megan and I tried. Jackie said that type of skepticism of the mother of the victim would normally be off limits in this context, which makes me wonder what else there is to the story. So by including those two interviews, which could have ended up on the cutting room floor and we would have lost nothing in the story, right? 
That they included them has me and Jackie and probably others wondering, are they trying to like read between the lines? Like they're trying to say something they're not saying by including that. And I thought that was definitely interesting. And then Elizabeth wanted to know what happened to her other sisters, which so A Beautiful Child is the initial book by Matt Birkbeck on the case. He did write a follow up after. Yes, Nina has it right there. Um, (laughs) They also had a um, he did a follow up after she was identified. And so. I honestly did not read that one, so there may be more um, context in there and that Matt could uh, provide if he wasn't busy doing interviews with everybody else. (laughs) Maybe I'll corner him on Instagram and be like, come on my podcast after you're done doing your your your, all, all the things, because I liked that because they followed this through the investigation standpoint, um, even if they truncated parts, they didn't truncate Matt's role in this. And his role in this was huge. As an investigative reporter, he was like, this is interesting. I think I'm going to follow this. He met with Floyd. He's He got the book out, which got lots of leads generated. I mean, it was a game changer, and I was very glad that he wasn't cut out of of connecting this. And this wasn't just a law enforcement story. This was a here is someone not in law enforcement who investigated and moved the needle on this case. This gives Michelle McNamara vibes. Very much. Yes. Well, and the special really seemed to be more family than law enforcement, more friends and family. Like I'm, I'm struggling to recall the law enforcement involvement. I know they were in there. Right but they were not the focus of the story. Exactly. I think if I look at this from they're telling Suzanne's story, this documentary was amazing. When I look at the totality of the case and all of these other details and including Cheryl's murder, including other murders, Franklin Floyd was around the area for, I I keep thinking that this really could have been just just a really epic multi-part. Netflix is starting to do companion podcasts Yes, for some of their documentaries. And our friend Anna worked on the one for The Girl in the Picture. Yes. And from my understanding, they had much more free reign on information. Mm -hmm. And so if you're wanting the details of the case... Like, enjoy the documentary for what it is, then get yourself over to that podcast and get the, right. you know, listen to Crime Lines, but then also go <laughs> listen to this podcast that um, our friend Anna helped produce. She also put on her Twitter some cases. So many cases. So many cases she has identified. And we know Anna. We can vouch for her. Yes. She's not going to say Israel Keys killed Adam Walsh. Like, she's not <laughs> doing these these non-connecting things. So she says they're connected. They're connected. She's an incredible researcher. Yes. I mean, the drive and, and the need for knowledge that she has. Yeah, she's done her due diligence. She's very detail-oriented, so she will find the things that say, okay, this couldn't have happened. So she has made a Twitter thread that is listing cases that happened, missing or murdered women in the areas Floyd was at the time he was. A lot of, well, I don't know that a lot of them, but some of them also worked in the clubs. 
that Floyd was forcing Suzanne to work at. And there may be more connections. The connection to Cheryl was just because they found those pictures in this car. It's actually pretty astonishing that they connected these at all, because that truck ended up in a, this is not in the documentary, it actually ended up a stolen vehicle, it got sold, ended up up here in Mission, Kansas, which is a suburb of Kansas City, and it was in a shop, and the guy was taking it apart and found these pictures stashed. And in those pictures, they noticed a a woman who was either near death or or after death, and they didn't know who she was, but they noticed she was very tan. And so they looked at Floyd's history and said, wow, he was in Florida. Let's start there. They looked at the years he was in Florida, and they found that there was a Jane Doe found who was wearing some of the same jewelry seen in those pictures. From Oklahoma City to Mission, Kansas, out to Florida, what it took to solve Cheryl's murder is unbelievable luck and detail-oriented detectives deciding that they're going to try to piece this together. And so Anna has listed other cases that need that same attention that may be linked to Floyd if someone sat down and really looked at the totality of the circumstances. So if anyone wants to follow Anna, it's Anna Priestland on, I actually don't know what her Twitter handle is, but you know what, I'll... It's a funny little handle. It's a funny thing, like I can't remember what it is, but it's... Anyway, I'll put it in the show notes if anyone wants to go check out her Twitter so that... How's them apples? So she, that's her Twitter handle. I will put it in the show notes so that people can go find her and look at these other cases. She has pulled FOIA requests on some of them. Some of them don't have very much to go on, but she is looking for media, podcasters, anyone interested in covering more of them. So again, I'll leave that in the show notes so that people can go look at it. On Twitter, Aaron asked, how did he get away with it for so long? And I think that's a very good question. If you look at his early life, he's been getting away with it since the early 60s. He was sent away for molesting a child, escaped from jail, robbed a bank, sent back to jail, and only served seven years for both of those crimes. If he had served a real sentence, he would have been in prison and never met Suzanne's mother. And that's actually how they realized he couldn't possibly have been her father because he was in jail when she would have been conceived. And he got out of jail, dressed himself up, went to church, and looked for a single mother. I 100% believe he was a, you know, I don't I don't like using words like true pedophile or something, but classic pedophile, like what we think of as a predator. Yes. Mm-hmm. He goes in, he befriends the adults, and he grooms the children. And that is exactly what he did there. And we don't know if there are more victims that have not been identified yet. He was just very lucky. It's very much dumb luck, but also just being aware that he can disappear into the background. He's not a memorable person other than the people whose lives he's entered. You wouldn't look at him on the street and be like, that looks like a weird dude. I think that he has the advantage of knowing how to disappear. Yeah, if you saw him, you wouldn't think twice. He also did not work. 
much at all. And if he worked, it would be under the table. And then once he got Suzanne working as a dancer, he didn't work at all. So it's not like he was having to provide a social security number for tax purposes. If you are willing to live in really cheap accommodations, accommodations that may not be asking for ID if you're not working, it's it's actually surprising how under the radar people can be. It's just what does surprise me is that Suzanne apparently just was not showing behaviors that were triggering adults to say there's something going on in that home, which we know happens that there are children who do fall through the cracks because their external outward behavior doesn't tell us what's happening behind the scenes. Well, and it was normal for her. It was her entire life. Yeah. And on Twitter, um, Gone in the Fog wrote that she wasn't clear about who the biological fathers of Suzanne's children were. And that's 100% something they glossed right over. They did not mention that when they actually do know who at least two of the fathers were, possibly three, but they were not involved at all in this documentary. And, And I think that was one of the things like they could not be involved in the documentary, but they could say her high school boyfriend, a guy she met at the club, like they could have been vague about it, but they just didn't say anything, which did make it seem a little confusing. Yeah, or that there was no awareness of who they would who they were, that she just randomly had these random relationships and then got pregnant. And this comment goes on to um, talk about the parents, too. When people started watching this and they were posting about it on social media, I had not seen it yet. So I didn't know what narrative they were going with, what perspective they were telling this story. But I saw people comparing it to In Plain Sight and comparing, like, wow, you think the parents in In Plain Sight were bad? Wait till you see this. And I thought, ooh, they're going to get into Sandy and whatever she did or did not do to find her daughter. You know, whatever she did was clearly not enough. She said she went to the police. They asked if she was married to him and said it was a civil matter, which would have possibly been true if he was the father. I don't know. Was she clear that he was not her father and that this wasn't a custody thing? This was actually a kidnapping? I wonder if because he was her husband, they were like, well, and police can be hesitant to get involved in custody disputes, even today. Yeah. I was going to say, 100%. I have cousins who are going through the same thing where cops are called on either side, like, just to flex whatever. And the response is always like, this is a civil matter. We don't get involved in this. Even if they have their, like, custody paperwork out, they're not going to act on anything. They're just going to be like, go your separate way, figure it out in court, because you're not going to, I'm not figuring it out for you. For the most part, it is a civil matter, even today. But she did not mention a single time going to court and asking what paperwork she needed to file. Had she done that, they may have been like, oh, wait, he's not her father? Oh, this is different. How old was her mother when she had Suzanne? I got the feeling she was quite young. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were like 18 because they were dating in high school and she got pregnant and he went to Vietnam. Right. And then he came back. And so my guess is she was probably like, I mean, I would say probably about 18 is my guess. So she ended up being like 24, 25 with four children under the age of five. Yes. Which is overwhelming in the best of circumstances. 
<laughs> I was going to say, even to, I don't know how Charlie does it with like six. <laughs> yeah, I was 26 when I had my fourth, but I was married to the same person the whole time, still married to him. He had graduated college. Right. We had a house. We had grandparents. We had family support. Yeah, we had a lot of support and we just we kind of did things earlier than than most mm -hmm. people as far as having the kids and stuff. But you definitely had better circumstances, right? I mean, like you. Right. We weren't impoverished. Yeah. And you would you have still had children had you not been in a like a stable relationship or financial situation? Yeah, so in one of the ways that I am an irresponsible human being is in planning children. So um, <laughs> I probably still would have had them um, because they just kind of come when they they show up when they show up is is our view on um on children. But yeah, I I don't know. We definitely had more than we could afford and were ready for. And actually, now that I have now that we're older and we have two more, I think back to being twenty six with little ones. And I think, wow, it is so much easier to do this in your 30s and 40s when like your brain is fully developed and mm. you have experience being an adult and paying bills. So when I think about her, you know, if she's in her early 20s, she's a single mom, she has all these kids, she's impoverished, we don't know her background. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say there's ever an excuse for failing your kid on this level because, you know, there isn't. But maybe it's my my compassion overdrive thing. I just my thought is, man, what what happened in her life? Like yeah. What, either, clearly, there wasn't much family because when the girls were taken, they were looking for a placement for all three of them. They didn't have family taking them. They didn't have aunts and uncles, grandparents who were in a position to take them. I don't know. I I had compassion for the parents in, in plain sight, too. So maybe I'm just a bad judge of um, people. No, I don't think so. I, I, I can see the parallels between that, uh, even to my own mom, because our relationship was strained because of how I was failed as a kid. You guys kind of know my history growing up and stuff. And that was a lot that I had to contend with myself to go like, as an adult now, going yeah, as a parent, I wouldn't have done that or I would have done something different. Um, but I also had to realize and kind of extend some grace to my own mom to be like, she was an abused woman by more than one person throughout pretty much her entire adult life in pretty much every relationship she's been in. She didn't have a way to positively cope through any of this. She had three kids that she had to raise and she was impoverished. I can't even imagine the amount of stress that you have. And I can empathize with, you know, the mom in this particular case because I get it. I'm like, I, I couldn't imagine doing what my mom did just with having Tilden. Like, there's <laughs> no way whatsoever. But I get it in the sense, and that's why I say I think maybe she was relieved to be like, you know, she gave up her kids willingly the first time. I think maybe she was relieved the second time that maybe all the signs were pointing in the right direction for her to be like, yeah, I should not be a mom. I, You know, and she gets to go and live her life. And sometimes people do that unapologetically, right? Like she's just like, that's just how life happened for me. And I can't do anything about the past. That's kind of my, the most annoying phrase my mom could ever say to me when I was younger is like, I can't change the past. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, you could say, sorry, <laughs> you could be like my bad, but she's, she's done it. We're fine. <laughs> she's done a better job about that now, but it, it's probably very much the same thing. It's like, 
her mentality is likely that she can't do anything about what transpired in the past. Did she make mistakes? Yes. Is she probably regretful of those? Yes. Does she know she's likely going to be vilified by millions of people across the social media sphere? Yes. Some people protect themselves by having those hard emotional stances and saying like, I'm just moving forward. I can't, I can't afford to look back. I have to just keep going forward. And maybe that's kind of where she's at with it. So we don't know, obviously, a lot about her. So I think it's only fair to try and extend some grace to this person who likely has experienced um, their own trauma and, you know, lacks development in that emotional side. Yeah, we're nice people. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, guys. (laughs) Sorry, we're nice. We are. (laughs) I, like, understand where all the judgment comes from, and then I just think, well, I don't know her story. And honestly, she might truly just not care. And if she truly does not care, Franklin Floyd did not care in much worse ways than she did not care, that I would definitely not put this entirely on her. But if she genuinely doesn't care what happened to her that made her someone who genuinely just doesn't care. And she didn't say anything in her interview that was was off. But then they follow it up with two people criticizing her. So why did they leave that in? I do agree that there's there's probably more to the story. We just don't know. It could be too painful for her to have a relationship with Megan. It's true. That's always a possibility. Yeah, especially if there's any like facial similarities. Like my I'm a spitting image of my mom. So I couldn't even imagine, you know, if that's it might be difficult to see, you know, and have that interaction when you don't have your your daughter and stuff. Like you said, you can be angry at her and disappointed in her and also think, you know what, maybe she did the best she could at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that phrase, like they did the best they could with what they had, I think we really have to sit and with the what they had part, because sometimes it's hard to imagine this is the best someone could have done. But you really have to know the full circumstances of what they had that that they could contribute to raising their children. And it doesn't sound like she had very much. She had a trailer that got hit by a tornado. Right. Well, and I think Suzanne's mom had a picker problem because she picked her first husband, Suzanne's dad, who was not able to be a husband and provider. And then she fucking picked Floyd. Yeah, I think she was like looking for someone to just take care of things for her. I'd be like, no, I'm going after somebody close to the preacher, okay? Because <laughs> I need my money, honey. <laughs> I'm a gold digger. <laughs> I don't know that this was in the documentary, but Floyd actually had competency hearings. And he was more offended at being portrayed as incompetent or insane than he was at being accused of multiple murders. And he tried to appeal at one point and was found incompetent to continue his appeal. So Franklin Floyd, while I don't think we're going to have any question that he is like a a psychopath, not to diagnose anybody, but like he's obviously leaning towards psychopath. But it seems like he also to be I mean, Ted Bundy was a psychopath and still competent to stand trial. The fact that Floyd has been found incompetent tells me that there's probably other things going on with him as well, because it is very difficult to be denied your right to a trial or to an appeal because of incompetency. That is a difficult bar, and 
he has like on multiple times been found incompetent. So there's there's definitely more going on with him. This documentary was not about him. It was about Suzanne. So, you know, that's besides the point. But I would be interested to know Floyd's psychological profile. Well, and again, looking at his upbringing, it would be shocking if he did not have a profound mental illness. I can think of attachment disorder right away because that's very common, right? Um, especially being so young and introduced into the foster care system and not having any balance of a caring family, right? It was all just nonstop. He wasn't even in a home. He was in like a group home from the age of two. So there was no nurturing going on. And at one point he did, as a teenager, his siblings were adults and his sister tried to take him in, but he was so unstable that her husband was afraid for their children's safety Yikes. and they had to send him to live somewhere else. And then and then he started getting arrested. So he's in and out of jail. So half the time he, was, he had a place to live because he was locked up. And then half the time he was just, you know, living wherever he could. It's interesting, the psychological profile of someone who could be found incompetent, but also manage to move around, change names, get new ID, fly under the radar. So there's like a certain competency to what he did, but there's also something else going on. He was up for the death penalty in Cheryl's case because Florida, but he would not allow psychiatric evidence in at his sentencing, which is where you put it all in because that's, that's your mitigating circumstances. Right. That is where you save your life by putting it all on the table and he refused to allow his lawyer to put it in. He did not want to be seen as mentally ill in any way, which I thought was um, very interesting. Show no weakness. Yeah. I think his background will tell us how he got to where he is, but we already we already know. It's kind of the, right. the serial killer background. You know, if, if you told me he had a head injury, I'd say, yeah. Just tick that off. The checklist. <laughs> you know, I get that diving into his past isn't necessarily going to bring us yeah. more understanding than we already have from all the serial killers we've already covered. But all in all, I think this documentary did really well at what it was doing. I just like a deep dive. Yes. It's perfect for those who like you know, the bites of true crime. Yeah. Yeah. This was a thumbnail sketch. Want those like 20 minute episodes on a podcast because they like to just get through it and don't want to get lost in the details of things. But this is really one of those cases you need to get lost in to fully understand the big impact on this. And it's not unreasonable to think, right, that he wasn't doing this before this was revealed. I can only imagine that he's had an opportunity for practice. And then as he continued to kind of advance in his skill set, if you will, why Anna's able to kind of, you know, dotted line to Franklin on these people who've gone missing or who have been found or does, et cetera. It's just, you know, unfortunate, likely that he is responsible for more people and likely more deaths. Well, this may be one of those situations where we do take this this documentary, they have the Deep Dive podcast, but then maybe there can be some more investigation. There can be some more change. Some cases can get closed through this. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this documentary discussion. And if any of our listeners have other documentaries they're interested in hearing our very winding conversational thoughts on, we are always happy to 
get on a call and talk to each other. So feel free to suggest those to any of the three of us, and we'll look into meeting up again to talk about this. And if you have any other questions about this case or things you're confused on, you can reach out to any of us on social media. I am Crime Lines Podcast pretty much everywhere, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. Lainey, how can they find you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, TCFC Pod. Um, and then from there, my social media spreads out. So if you find True Crime Fan Club, you're on the right track. <laughs> I met Already Gone Pod on Twitter. We're all Twitterers. Yes. Tweeters. Yes, I love Twitterers. Twitter. Tweeters. Finding us on Twitter is probably the easiest, but whatever platform you're on, let us know your thoughts on this documentary. Did you like it? Did you want more depth? Was it good for what it was? Let us know, and we will talk to you on our own regular episodes very soon. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Charlie.